This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in. We know it's a beautiful day out there, and you could be doing other things in the sun, but, hey, uh, a bit of science for an hour is going to be good for you. In the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning. Good morning. Good beautiful is perhaps a little bit optimistic, but each to their own. Well, you know, you've got to have hope. Yeah, it's um, true. Hope's important. But, uh, I like the fact that it's snowing on the mountains, you know, that True. That's if it's nice going to be cold and miserable, yeah. you might least, get snow out of it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's been snowing like buggery up there, yeah. so it's fantastic. Chris KP. Beauty, Speaking of buggery. The beauty is in the eye of the beholder, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah. um, or, or some part of the beholder. How are you? I'm, I'm very well. And we've got uh, Liv here doing our Twitter feed, which is exciting. Vigorously, I can to, tell this. Oh, she is she's yeah, feverishly. Feverishly. Yeah, yeah, she's doing good. <laughs> she's looking at us like, shut <laughs> She's up. like, when do I finish? <laughs> 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 in about 56 minutes. Uh, we have a couple of guests coming in the studio a little bit later. We're going to start off with some news. Uh, I think Jen is away sick. so Yeah, she's not actually well, she's sick, not sick, but with sick child. With sick child. So yeah. um, Also working feverishly, but in a totally different sense. <laughs> Yeah, yeah well, hopefully not too feverishly. Hopefully not too feverishly. Yeah. So, some news. Uh, Dr. Ewan. Please. Yep. How did you guess? Well, you told me earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I thought your phone's on vibrate. So it's, actually, it's actually not quite bees, but very close. So uh, flowers. So a fascinating study came out, uh, was published in Ecology Letters this week, which looked at the ability of plants, in this case the primrose, to listen. And the argument is, of course, is that if a plant can recognise that a pollinator is nearby, they can actually manipulate their nectar, and sweeter nectar is more likely to be visited and therefore cross-pollinated. Of course, if you get more people visiting, sorry, people, more insects visiting, pollinators insect uh, visiting the flowers. Is this, is this like men sucking their stomach in when they see an attractive woman? I'm not going to touch it's that just one. You, I think I'm just going to let that one it go. It is straight not just me. <laughs> but anyway, they did this experiment where they actually put uh, bees in a soundproof chamber, sorry, the plants in a soundproof chamber, and then they applied high-frequency, intermediate-frequency, low-frequency, which is very similar to the sound of a bee, and the bee uh, sound itself. And they did, in fact, change their sweetness of their nectar in response to only the low frequency and the B frequency mm. up to about 20%. So um, from about 12% up to about 20%. Bear in mind, bees can recognise a difference of 1% of sweetness. How quick do so they do it? Yeah, I was going to ask the same question. This is the cool part. Within three to four minutes. Wow. So it's super quick. Wow. Super quick. And That's that makes cool. sense if you think about it, because if a, if a bee is flying past and you don't recognise that, hey, hang on, I might get pollinated here, if you don't respond quickly, then you might miss your window of opportunity, right? Mm. Um, the other really cool part was actually looked at the structure of the flowers themselves uh, and worked out the fact that you know, if you look at many flowers, they're actually kind of the classic cone shape. And there's a very good reason for that, that it actually um, captures the frequency of the sound mm. very well and vibrates that through the plant. Mm. And they showed this by actually manipulating the flower itself, by basically taking out petals and seeing how that affected um, the frequencies um, and, and so forth that you could hear in this flower. And remarkable. And so what this study is actually arguing is there's a whole new field that can open up called phytoacoustics, which is looking at how plants themselves are actually capturing information about the environment through sound that they can, of course, benefit from, in this case, pollination. But there's other things too when you think about about you know if there's a herbivore cruising past that might actually uh, hurt you or eat you. We know that plants can actually respond by pumping nasty chemicals into their leaves mm. Um, mm. in response to being eaten. So there's a whole 
bunch of things that this potentially be related that is, to. That is very cool when you consider that traditionally you hear about flower structure being about attracting bees. Yeah. But it's, it's, it goes the other direction too. It's, it's also literally ears for plants. Yeah. Um, so this is super cool. And the other thing they did, of course, point out is what this might mean in urban environments where there's all this sound Noise. going around. Mm-hmm. And we know that that already affects a whole range of species in, in different ways. And the, I guess the question does come up if that interferes in some way with, um, this relationship between plants and pollinators, in this case bees, again, is that a potential explanation for why we have all these issues with things like bees, but also plants themselves? Mm. Well, so. well the, the, the great part about that, in a sense, though, is that with these experiments, it should be really easy to simulate that, that environment acoustically and see yep. whether or not the bee sound can still be picked up by the plants and, and well, responded they've shown to that, so that they, they can definitely pick out you know, the bee sound from all these other sounds in, mm. in, the, in the area. But I guess if you had similar sounds being made by some machinery or something yeah, yeah. that was, you know, low frequency and let's say the um, plants are all pumping all their nectar out at the wrong time, Fine. that's actually energetically costly to do that too. Yep. So yep. who knows? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, I think that it's super interesting because we know we know so much about how, you know, how the bee works and, you know, we've really done a lot of work over the years. You know, there's been huge amounts of research done on how bees interact with yep. their environment. But this part is different. This is the bee driving the environment, which is very different to the bee picking up on the environment, which exactly. I think is a, is, a, is a very cool difference. So, mm. well, um, I, I'd have a million questions for those researchers on the bee stuff because I think it's, um, it's also, super fascinating. I'm also wondering about, um, you know, the flowers that we eat. Uh, like commercially, I'm wondering if if there if there's if you would want to trigger more or less sweetness in them, um, and then yeah, you cut them because once you know once mm. it's in there, it's there, right? It's uh, mm. it's not going to break down anymore. Yeah. So just playing B sounds all over the yeah, farm. Yeah, so here's the B side. <laughs> Ma- um, maybe send Barry White cut just, just before you cut the zucchini flowers off. Oh yeah, I yeah. don't know whether or not Barry White's the right frequency. Well, it's very low. But is it lower than a B? <laughs> I don't know. B re White. Um, I, I just don't know. <laughs> yeah. And they went with phyto. What they go with? Phytoacoustics. So they didn't go with audio ecology. No, phyto is better. Phyto is plant, plant, plant acoustics. Plant phyto, acoustics. Phyto yeah. is a pretty good prefix for most yeah. things. Yeah. Phyto is cool. Yeah, I mean you're a botanist yourself. Well, right? and the bottom so line is the you know the first rule of Phyto Club is uh, <laughs> is we tell everybody about it because <laughs> their name is so cool. <laughs> well, I got to look out for that person in the pub who says they they're a phytoacoustician. Oh it's yeah, it's going to come up. Yes. it's a nice one. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Yeah. Anyway, Chris, what do you got? Uh, uh, bladder cancer. Uh, I don't, which is good, um, but I do have a story about it, which is uh, or perhaps better. So uh, a small study that came out of the uh, University of Surrey and their, and their um, associates uh, published recently in the Journal of, uh, of uh, Clinical Cancer where they, they basically got a virus. Um, and, and this is an attempt to see if a virus could have an impact on the growth of cancer. Now, the idea of, of uh, viral approaches to uh, cancer is not all that new, but what they did was so wonderfully simple. So essentially they had uh, a small group, there's only four or five um, patients, who had bladder cancer, and they already had catheters as part of their treatment. So what they did with these guys is they pumped um, a virus in, the, and the virus, this is a common cold virus known as coxiavirus, which they, it's a, one of the cancer viruses. So they dumped this into the catheter and left it there for about an hour and then did that again and then they went into the surgery they were already planning to do to try and cut the tumours out of these patients. What they found is that all of the patients had reduced tumour size. Mm. One of them had no tumour at all. Wow. Um, and this is, like I said, just an ordinary, existing, reasonably common cold virus 
pump through a system with not a lot more um, you know process around it apart from that. Now, at this point, the question is: Okay, is it is it because it's actually eating away at the, at the tumor? Is it doing something else to the body that is causing that to happen? Is it distracting or in some way? Um, redirecting the immune system, and this is this is the unknown feature, um, or is there some component of this of this virus that we could learn from, or some component of this process that we could learn from and from other treatments, did, which we don't know. Did they all get the virus, or was there a placebo as well? Um, I think all these guys did. Okay. So the, other, the question I had was, was there a control? And I yeah. don't know there was, but the other is. They were all at different, not different stages, but different types of growth. Okay. So there's there's a bit of grey area yeah. there, uh, yeah. and this is why. I mean, I I, I would caution people not to get overexcited. Um, yeah. Or because, to go and get the flu. Yeah. Don't yeah. Don't, don't think that yeah that, yeah that a cold is gonna is gonna help you out if you've got bladder cancer per se, um, but it does tell us that the that the immune response to cancer can be manipulated. Mm. I think that's the really mm. exciting yep. part of it, and that it doesn't need to be something that we invented. There's quite possibly something out there existing that we could learn from yeah. um, that might be a good way forward. Yeah, Nice stuff. Very yes. interesting. Yes. Uh, like I've been saying for over 10 years now, put some more effort into the immune system. It's your friend. Because, yeah. uh, and, and this, it's interesting because this has started to happen now because of the interest in immunotherapies for cancer. Mm-hmm. So a lot more research money is going towards those. But the immune system itself over the years has been disproportionately not, not funded very well. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at the number of issues that are dealt with, you know, by things like steroids um, as a, as a, a clinical mm. response, you know, the immune system is involved. So the more we understand about it, the better. And it literally is the most sophisticated part of our bodies, in my view. I think it's extraordinary. So, and not just ours. You know, other animals as yes, well. Yes, of so, course. Yeah. Yes. Uh, now, speaking of spending bucket loads of money, yes. this, this is going to excite you because I know he gets very excited when a lot of money gets flushed out into space. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, you didn't make that sound very glamorous. Already being trolled, and it's only eleven minutes in. <laughs> Sorry, man. I was just giving you a trigger warning because I know you're going to freak out. Um, but there's a <laughs> there's a very very happy lady named Elizabeth Turtle. She's got a great name. That is a great name. A great name. Yeah. Um, because on the 26th of June, um, she got a call from NASA about uh, a project which has been something she's been working on for many years, and they've essentially allocated something close to one billion dollars. That's that's a really big number. Ewan. Um, that is a large number. And I know you could tell me how many threatened species in Australia could be <laughs> a taken. Lot. Pretty much all of them. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, but the idea here is that uh, she's been working on a project to launch a, a quadcopter, or essentially a very sophisticated one, to the moon Titan, one of Saturn's moons. Oh, yes. Now, this is yes. the one that's of particular interest because it basically has, you know, this, um, you know, ice crust and these methane rivers running across. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating, you know, world out there. And there's, pretty you know reasonable expectations like some of the other moons in the solar system at the moment that because of the dynamic nature of these moons and that they're not as cold as we once thought that there could be the early forms of life on some of these moons so but you've got to get there you know you can't mm. just take photos from a distance and hope hope the best so this um quad Copter, which they're calling Dragonfly, which I thought was really cool. Um, it won't actually even launch until 2026 um, and it's Going to get there in 2034. So this this is an interesting patience. Yeah, this is mm. an interesting thing for a planetary scientists. I suspect are all in this boat, but many of them actually their lifetime will almost be one or maybe mm. two missions. Because I can't imagine the stress involved in that. Like yeah, you have to yeah. forward plan for oh, decades, literally, yeah, right. and then one thing goes wrong. You're like, oh well, <laughs> oh well, <laughs> that little bit of code. Um, but you know, this is it's an interesting scenario because you've got you've got these these people who have literally been doing this this one time 
task towards this one goal. Yeah. Like, and New Horizons would look like yeah. this with Pluto and so forth for, you know, 20, 30 years of their life. And in fact, even prior to, you know, doing this, I mean, this, this woman's been studying, you know, Titan for about 15 years. Mm. She's only just been given the go ahead. The thing won't even launch until, you know, um, 2026. Yeah. And then it won't get there until 2034. I'm doing the numbers in my yeah. head on how old I'll be. And mm. it's like, whoa, you know, that's a little way off. But, um, this, this idea will, will sort of, boost off what Cassini already sort of sent back, um, which was a lot in the Huygens probe, which actually went down to Titan. But, uh, you know, they're still distance. This thing will actually be able to zip around like a normal quadcopter. It'll land. It'll have a whole chemical array, you know, of um, experiments it will do. And then it will move to another site and it'll stay there for many years. The other thing that's cool about that is that, you said 2034? Yep. It's between now and 2034... There's going to be a point where they have to go, okay, stop advancing how we do this thing, because between now and then, technology is mm. going to advance. I still oh, say yeah, the yeah. same thing. Yeah. Like, you have to basically assume that, yeah, technology is not going to get much better, because otherwise wonder... you're basically launching obsolete technology. Yeah. Mm. Well, you, mm. you, you'll have to do it at some point, though, <laughs> yeah, because absolutely. it'll be too late. You know, you've yeah. got to build the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this, this happens every time we, we see one of these missions. You look and you say, oh, wow, look at these images coming out. Mm. And you have to remind yourself, yep. yeah, and that camera, by the way, was launched 11, 12 years yeah, ago. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is we often compare it to what we've got in our pocket pocket now and mm. weirdly of course some of the things we have in their pocket are as a result yep. of that work that was mm. done on some of those missions in the, because that's what it was designed because the fantasy would be that you would have some system on or in uh the the technology that goes up there that would enable it to recognize that what it needs and rebuild mm. and restructure mm. yeah that's, that's right that's the AI so it's gonna, approach it's going to have some pretty cool stuff it'll have uh four four pairs of rotors so you know like a normal quadcopter i suppose mm-hmm. and most quad Copters though do not have mini mini um, nuclear reactors, so that's yeah. unusual. Yeah, yeah. Little, that's little, probably a good general. thing considering how people have yeah. drones at the moment. <laughs> yeah. so. <laughs> drones everywhere. <laughs> um, it'll have the stock standard lithium-ion battery, ten cameras, two sampling drills, so that when it lands, it can drill into the how, ice. And, and how and big so is it? Um, it's it's quite substantial. I think it's about a meter or so wide. So I don't the, remember exactly. Uh, the other but, question um, I have is like how windy and how how hard is it to fly these things? Because you know on, oh, it's yeah. hard enough on yeah. Earth, right? Yeah. But there's some other areas obviously that are far harsher in, the, in terms of conditions. Well, well beyond anything else, um, the surface temperatures are around minus 180 degrees Celsius. That's chilly. So you've got some, you've got some serious problems with that alone. <laughs> but you know, this, this will have to be an absolute beast of a quadcopter to for it to, to yeah. work in that environment. And you know, there'll be, one of the reasons it has a nuclear generator on it is to keep it warm <laughs> so it can function. You know, yeah. this is what these, you know, it's the same like the rovers on Mars. Yeah. You know, that, the actual experiment itself has to, you know, the equipment has to be kept warm. And so, you know, that's, that's one of the ways they do that. But look, it's, um, I, I would say, uh, hopefully we'll still be broadcasting, uh, when it lands and we'll tell you yeah. all about it in 2034. I mean, Chris will be too old by then to, oh, you will still be in. around. Will me in. Yeah. Well, your, your brain <laughs> will be in like a little sort of bucket with wires coming out and we'll still connect you up. I'm, I'm fine with that. If that's, if that's my existence, I'm totally fine <laughs> with that. If you think that's where it's going to go. Folks, we're going to take a break for, uh, a nice little piece of music and then we'll be back in a moment with our first guest today. We're going to be talking about migraines and all the things that can go wrong with your head. Three. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Professor Tissa Whitney-Rutney. He is the chair of the National Migraine Foundation, director of the Department of Neurology and Stroke Services in the Department of Medicine at Western Health and the Melbourne Medical School at the University of Melbourne. Tissa, I know I've missed a few things, but uh, <laughs> you, have, you have a mile long of things you have to do. What have I missed? 
I am also the current chair for World Brain Day Committee for World Federation Neurology and International Headache Society. These are the two massive organizations primarily interested in brain and headache disorders in particular. So I have the mission of uh, running the first ever global World Brain Day team dedicated to migraine, which is just next week. Yeah, and we're, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Before we do, though, I want to sort of back us up a bit and just talk about migraines. And, you know, we've got Liv in the studio. She she gets um, migraines on, on occasion. She's actually walked out of the studio on occasion. They've come on so fast. Can you give us an idea of what's happening in the brain when someone has a migraine? I'm, I'm sure there's not one answer to this, but give us an overview. Shane, you asked me a great question. Migraine had been around uh, as long as... Uh, almost human civilization existed. We may not have called it migraine 5,000, 6,000 years ago. But the literature, uh, when I spend on some sleepless nights, uh, tells me that uh, they were describing something similar to migraine. Migraine is the leading cause of disability worldwide uh, among people who are younger than 50 years of age. Mm -hmm. Now to my fellow listeners in Triple R, don't get... uh, the the offended uh, if you are older than 50 i would like to remind that uh, this is the crowd which is holding this society up mm. this is the crowd which is putting a lot of uh, sweat and blood uh, to keep this earth going and if this disorder is causing havoc in that community you can affect uh, what the progression of uh, our world be let's turn to australia migraine is the leading cause of disability in australia in fact 2018 alone migraine cost uh, Australian taxpayers uh, almost close to $40 billion, $40 billion. So th- these aren't numbers that people hear, though. I mean, it seems almost invisible, in a sense, the, the whole migraine problem, doesn't it? 100%. This is the holy grail of the problem. I myself suffer from migraine, too. Mm. Today, hopefully, I'm presenting myself as a good, decent uh, academic neurologist and keeping you entertained. Uh, but if you interview me while I'm suffering through an episode of migraine, you would probably extract uh, 5% or 10% of my brain performance and you would probably kick me out of this studio <laughs> as fast as I came in. Yeah, yeah. So the, the problem is uh, for my wife, for my children, even if I'm suffering from a nasty migraine, they can't see it. I can mm. still smile. I can move my arms and legs. So it's uh, invisible disability. So as a result of this, uh, sadly, one of the painful truths about migraine is this disorder continue to be the most neglected, least respected, worst managed medical disorder right across uh, the world, certainly in Australia. Almost every week uh, when I work uh, at uh, my public hospital, I would meet uh, at least uh, three or four patients uh, who had uh, disabling migraine for long time without even knowing that they were suffering from migraine. Mm. The the environmental conditions that bring migraines on and make them worse too seem to be so prolific in our society. So whether it be fluorescent lights or loud sound or bright lights, uh, this is not something that is considered in the workplace that you would normally see. So you might, for example, have a range of other uh, things in place to help people with a variety of disabilities, but the disability of migraine is not something that often factors into the design of workplaces at all. 100% you hit the nail on the head. This is going to be a major theme when we run our next uh, World Congress Neurology in Dubai, September. Mm. Uh, we are plotting a massive uh, the press conference at that time uh, just to address this issue. My colleagues in Philippines and Japan told me that uh, the whole lot of uh, IT 
work force that they have put forward philippine in particular with all the outsourcing of work their migrant population has skyrocketed uh the i cannot uh, divulge more information before the press conference and before the publications go on mm. so the world would uh, wake up to new truth uh, new another painful truth uh, come september uh, the dubai meeting i'll, I'll come back and probably yeah. uh, share them at at that time yeah so, so as a non migraine sufferer can you actually tell me physiologically what's happening when a migraine occurs that's a great question also uh, let me take you through the journey of human brain Human brain is basically responsible for the question that you ask from me. Human brain is responsible for me responding to this question also. If I were to demystify what human brain is, this is the most amazing organ in our body without a question. Without our brains we are nothing. Yep. Our brains are very sophisticated electrical computers. Uh, there won't be a man-made computer that can match it uh, at least that i can perceive at this point of time so inside your brain you have about uh, 100 billion biological electrical wires uh, clumped together that are constantly changing every second and these biological electrical wires uh, if you were to think of the length uh, let's say that uh, i go into your brain and take uh, each of your neuron out uh, and decided to walk around the planet earth to lay down each neuron not that i'm planning to do that <laughs> if you do that that would uh, that would take uh, me walking alone planet earth at least four times yeah. <laughs> that much neurons clumped in your brain yeah. now they talk to each other uh, through two main mechanisms uh, one is uh, electricity and the other is chemically it is believed that the chemical connections between these uh, wires uh, are probably in the realm of uh, 10 trillion Yep. So in migraine what happened is uh, although there is nothing wrong with uh, my brain or your colleague who gets uh, migraine in her brain I'm sure we have pristine crystal clear brains <laughs> <laughs> probably better than rest of the others what happened is when we do get migraine we have changes occurring in either electricity yeah. or chemically the then that uh, generate a cascade of symptoms uh, which can broadly divide into four phases most of the patients uh, do not know this uh, but i must uh, do a little bit of a disclaimer that uh, none of the listeners at home should not make a diagnosis of migraine on the basis of this discussion as yep. we know mm. uh, diagnosing a medical disorder is a medical consultation you don't listen to triple r to make yourself <laughs> diagnosed probably not the best idea not, not the best <laughs> so the, the this is all generic advice so these four phases if i were to take you through the first phase is known as uh, prodrome say for an example if i'm going to get a migraine tomorrow or day after tomorrow today I might have a bizarre collection of symptoms. Uh, I might wanting to go to the toilet uh, yeah. more often than usual. I might yawn a fair bit. I might be irritable. Or I might uh, suddenly feel like uh, our prime minister feeling immediately after the election day sort of without having a specific reason I might feel elated or yeah. <laughs> I might feel the other way around. Yeah. Uh, I might feel quite down uh, the probably how mr shorten would have felt <laughs> on that day without having a specific reason though yep. so the these these things are known as prodrome and i can go on talking about them for a weekend even that's the prodrome that occurred uh, in occurs in almost all migraine patients then about 15% of the patients would get what is known as aura this is usually a positive phenomenon or negative phenomenon 
patients might experience uh, changes in depth perception it is believed Louis Carroll who wrote uh, mm. uh, the Alice in Wonderland suffer from migraine mm. I have been to Oxford University I have been to the great hall where he did tutoring mm. and I was pointed out the little hole mm. that he probably ah. was experiencing when he was getting migraine which mm. Uh, mm. the the generate this uh, amazing story with the uh, yeah. changes and mm. size changes and so on and so forth Uh, the common visual aura that most of our patients uh, experience include uh, visual aura where mm. you might see uh, the the blurring of vision or spots uh, or stars uh, or uh, the mirage uh, occurring at a small place and then gradually getting mm. bigger or the other way around then you get what is known as uh, typical acute uh, attack of migraine this is almost like a big uh, orchestra or a concert uh, so this is uh, this is full of features mm. uh, so the if i if i get a migraine headache it would be a throbbing headache uh, and uh, i would have lot of associated features i might feel nauseous uh, i might be exquisitely sensitive to smell and uh, the light uh, and as she mentioned uh, the supermarket lights uh, mm. the computer screens or mm. the smartphone screens uh, all those things uh, would uh, quite uh, irritable to me if i'm experiencing that so that's the acute attack period which could last from anything from few hours to few days typically under 72 days yeah then the fourth phase of the illness is what is known as postdrome i have patients of mine who suffer from postdrome for weeks so wow. this this can disable you this can basically knock you off as if you have been drinking for 3 days yep. and uh, the 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 you are physically exhausted uh, you are physically tired uh, and uh, uh, that can go on from few hours to few days uh, some of my patients uh, up to a week or so so the 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 issue is uh, none of these things can be measured mm. there is no test uh, that uh, can diagnose mm. and i can i can go through any one of these phase faces and put a nice smile in front of my face and pretend as if nothing wrong uh, with me yeah. as a result of this uh, and as a result of uh, we ourselves uh, not uh, giving the due recognition that this disorder should uh, achieve uh, patients uh, suffer mm. and there's a lot of stigma sure. uh, among migraine also the it is uh, not uncommon for me to uh, hear a conversation in some of the emergency departments uh, or some of the the medical practices even that uh, the migraine patients are, uh, are are not receiving the care that they should be receiving yeah. and we must uh, combat this and fix this uh, yeah. once and so, for all so just uh, i mean pivoting at that point to the treatments it, it i mean there are treatments out there and in fact I, I, my understanding is the the treatment possibilities for migraines have rapidly accelerated over the last few years but they're still somewhat in- insufficient can you talk us through what's available what works what doesn't the the as i said migraine had been around for a long period of time and uh, the over the last uh, 20 30 years uh, a lot happened and uh, the australia is the is at forefront of generating most of these things mm. uh, the our first neuroscience chair late uh, professor James Lance uh, fondly known as Jim Lance uh, I honor him with an annual uh, James Lance uh, Peter Goldsby symposium at Sunshine Hospital annually since last year we lost him uh, sadly early this year we are planning mm-hmm. to host the second event uh, Uh, inviting one of his best and brightest student who is at King's College London visiting us at Sunshine on 9th and 10th uh, August uh, this year 
the this group over last 30 years uh, the the done a hell of a lot uh, to find out and demystify some of the issues in migraine that's uh, why i am confidently coming here and saying that this is a disorder affecting complex brain networks but predominantly causing changes in electricity and chemical activity so coming back to you uh, the the part the the, the broadly speaking uh, there are two ways that we treat uh, migraine one is uh, at the moment uh, what i'm experiencing is what is known as acute episodic migraine so as uh, your colleague because uh, provided that we are not hiding a mm. chronic migraine underneath us uh, putting a smile in front of our face so the 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 if you are someone who is suffering from acute episodic migraine your treatment goal is to treat the acute attack as fast as possible and get rid of the symptoms that are caused by this preferably within 2 hours mm-hmm. i tell my patient that this is the clinical goal that you and me both wanted to achieve and this clinical goal has another feature i would like my patients to be 100% symptom free next day morning so if we can get rid of acute attack within 2 hours and if we can get my patients or myself for that matter 100% pain free next day morning then my chance of getting into what is known as medication overuse headache is close to zero i think it is a good point to remind about medication overuse headache because migraine is a, brain is a funny organ as i said it is mm. also the most amazing mm. organ mm. the the treatment that we do use in acute attacks if we overdo it say for an example if i were to use acute migraine treatment any more than 2 days per week for more than 3 months that uh, comes to about uh, 10 days per month for more than 3 months uh, those medications themselves started to cause cascade of chemical and electrical reactions in my brain generating what is known as chronic migraine <laughs> which is uh, the more disabling mm, yeah. variety mm. which uh, about 3% of the migraine patients would end up so we need to be cautious on that so that's the acute treatment for acute treatment uh, there are truck load of medication that we have there are migraine specific medications uh, and uh, there are painkillers uh, and uh, you need to use them cautiously strictly on medical advice uh, certainly not beating that uh, the two day rule if you overdo it it's almost like if your house is on fire huh. you ask fire brigade to come alone and they put petrol into your house uh, yeah. so that won't control <laughs> yeah, fire it's not so, so good that's, that's the mean. acute treatment and uh, there are new treatment coming along also in fact uh, the peter goldsby's group and my other colleague at mayo clinic david dodick's group a few others uh, uh, there will be new molecules uh, come into acute uh, treatment within the next uh, 12 to 24 months also with regard to prevention say for an example if i am getting say 3 4 headache days per month or if i am uh, losing my work ability or performance uh, due to uh, multiple episodes of migraine per month uh, most of us uh, would uh, try to prescribe preventative approach uh, to uh, migraine patients uh, with the idea of reducing number of attacks or episodes that we get per month uh, this also has changed dramatically but broadly speaking the new frontiers of medications can be divided into two main ways one is uh, there is a molecule called calcitonin gene related peptide which was actually Uh, the initially isolated by young peter godsby when he was a young bloke in sydney sticking needles into some of his patients neck and then sending them to sweden to test them out uh, who 
well, that was done by Professor Lars Edwinson, the current International Headache Society president. So this is a 30-year-old journey. Mm. And now we have uh, molecules that can either completely mop uh, CGRP molecule away or block where CGP, CGRP molecule is acting as a receptor, a keyhole in, in the body. So that's uh, one broad way of speaking. There are four or five products that we have yeah. access to them uh, will be available in Australia in time to come also, but they are available in experimental level or compassionate ground at this point of time. The other broad speak ver- variety of way of treating is uh, electrical stimulation of the brain. So you could have uh, a device that you might put on your thumb or on your mm-hmm. the, the the upper arm or back of the head uh, without uh, sticking things internally into the body. You can change the way that we electrically stimulating brain. If we were having this conversation in Europe or USA, I can fill this whole table with like 100 uh, devices with FDA approval. Sadly, though, we hardly have any interest in Australia to bring them on. Uh, the, mm. the, the, at this point of time, apart from one particular device, uh, which is the original, uh, the, the one of the, uh, the, the uh, original devices uh, available, which I'm not going to name due to commercial interests uh, in this uh, radio show. Uh, the, we don't have any uh, one of the other things. Uh, it's a pity that uh, we have like six million patients uh, in this Australia. So if you are interested in business that's a big market yeah. mm-hmm. but no company seems to be interested in it uh, so the, when I approach a couple of companies they suggested me to do it and I said to them that <laughs> I'm an academic <laughs> neurologist and I'm not a businessman yeah. and yeah, yeah, it yeah. is up to you to bring them on so those yeah. are the two broad, broad okay. ways of uh, uh, treating preventative medication yeah. and altogether we have like 17 uh, types of uh, medication that we can choose from on the topic of prevention, though, are there there sort of lifestyle changes or other things that we can do to reduce trigger factors for a migraine? The, the, I think you ask a fantastic question. The, the 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 answer is yes, yes, yes. So the 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 I tell my migraine patients that uh, if you are born to this world with uh, migraine genetic tendency which uh, there are about 33, 34 genotypes that we have isolated, which includes myself and your colleague also, uh, probably some of you also, if you are not diagnosing it uh, 50 to 60% of the time, we have to be the nicest human beings on the planet. <laughs> so if, if, if we are nicest human beings in the, on the planet, uh, we basically minimize uh, situations that generate uh, too much stress uh, yeah. in, in our day-to-day life. I tell my patient that uh, if you can't be a saint, uh, try your level best uh, to be closer yeah. to one of them. So that, <laughs> that, that reduces uh, psychological stress. Uh, now here I have to remind uh, listeners that uh, migraine is not caused by stress. Mm. In fact, it is the other way around. Uh, Migraine causes a lot of stress Mm. uh, to the family members, uh, the husbands of migraine patients or husbands uh, with the the wives of migraine husbands. So, but uh, the the more that we uh, enhance our capacity to deal with uh, uh, positive stress, uh, the, I think uh, you reduce the tendency yep. to that uh, mm. changes in electricity chemical yeah. activity. Yeah. That's yeah. number one. Number two, uh, proper sleep. Uh, proper yeah. sleep includes uh, uh, the sl- not sleeping too much and not sleeping too little. Yeah. So the preferred amount of sleep is around six to seven hours of uh, good quality sleep. Yeah. So that helps. The mm. third thing is uh, 
regular walks mm. uh, and, and, and running, preferably out and about. I think uh, Australia is a fantastic country. We all know that this is the best country in the world. I would like to say that Melbourne is the best place to live and uh, we have a truckload of walking tracks. So that's free. Nobody charge you to yeah. walk. Yes, so it's all the, free. So the daily walks are important. And the other thing is adequate hydration, yeah. uh, plenty of water, cutting yeah. back uh, coffee and fizzy drinks uh, and uh, the eating healthy food yeah. frequent uh, small quantities and things containing mm. some of the other healthcare products such as uh, mm. magnesium vitamin b6 uh, they are quite helpful also yeah. sounds like good yeah. advice for all of us yeah, <laughs> now, just before we let you go because we're, we're almost out of time but uh, next sunday is the national migraine walk which you're you know you're the one organising a lot of this. Um, tell us, what, what's that about and where, where should people go? I think uh, the, I reminded our listeners that uh, the, we lost uh, almost $40 billion that should have gone to building universities, building hospitals, uh, building parks, uh, building roads uh, mm. uh, the last mm. year for migraine. In my mind, this is a disorder that we can fix 100% uh, because there's nothing structurally wrong with migraine brain. brain. Unfortunately, it remains uh, significantly neglected in Australia. So I think the only way that we are going to fix it is uh, by putting uh, the, the pe- showing people power to our policymakers and funders and doctors in particular so that they can get interested in this amazing disorder. Yep. So the, with this in mind, uh, the, we are launching first uh, ever national migraine walk uh, to start in front of the Art Centre Victoria Gardens uh, next Sunday. Uh, it's a free event. Uh, you are very welcome to donate 10 bucks if you want to, but if you don't want to, we are still willing to have you without you donating a cent. We would like your presence. Uh, f- help us to help you. Come alone. Uh, 2.30 for a 3 o'clock start, uh, and we are going to do a very peaceful walk along the Sonston Street uh, to the State Library front entrance, uh, and then we are going to have a press conference uh, at that time to talk about migraine and uh, the, incre- uh, the improved awareness. Uh, come alone, it would be a great thing to do, and uh, this is yeah. affecting 6 million of fellow Australians, uh, which means... Uh, these six million Australians have family members, friends. So yeah. all of us are affected. Half so of the country. The, yeah. the, it's, 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 a, it's a countrywide thing. It is yeah. the it is the commonest medical <laughs> disorder. It uh, cost us uh, nearly forty billion dollars, uh, and this is a carnage that we can fix one hundred percent. So unless you are having a life-threatening illness uh, next Sunday. <laughs> I know that there's a big game around also, but just for once, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, they just divert your attention to us, and we would release you uh, within about half an hour to 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, come along and help us. Well, I would love to see you all there. Tissa, I'm hoping to be there, and I think a few other people that we know will be there as well. Um, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about this, this issue that is such a silent problem that uh, we don't hear about enough of. We don't have many famous people running around and um, talking about it, which often means it doesn't get in the media. And, and in the workplace, it's almost it's a disability that's not a- accounted for at all. So thanks so much. Good luck with your ongoing work, and uh, we'll speak to you again. Thank you very much for having me. Have a terrific day, all of you, and terrific day to all our listeners too. Yeah. Folks, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements and music, and we'll be back in a little bit. 3 Triple. Yeah, we're back, folks. You are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein the Gogo. We've got about 14 minutes to go or so. 
And in the studio with us now is Lisa Sullivan. She's the senior curator down at the Geelong Gallery. Lisa, welcome to the studio. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Lovely to be here. Look, you're on Triple R every now and then on some of the other shows, like Smart Arts and so forth, but we thought we'd grab you for a bit of science today. That's right. I have never been on a science show, so please be gentle. (laughs) (laughs) We we promise not to ask you any science questions, but I I cannot speak for these two. I promise promise nothing of the sort. It won't go right. But uh, the reason I wanted to get you on is because uh, the great folk at Triple last sent me some during the week which was indicating the new exhibition that you've been putting together mm-hmm. celebrating the 50 years since the Apollo missions down at the Geelong Gallery so tell us all about it it sounds fascinating that's right certainly the 50th anniversary was very much the starting point for the exhibition uh, and indeed there was one work that was the starting point mm-hmm. which is a work by Michael Light an American artist uh, his work Drift 29 Days, 18 Hours, 2 Minutes, Mm. which was a compilation that he made in 1999. He had access to the NASA archive and he compiled together a whole range of still images uh, in a seven-minute stop motion animation, mm-hmm. uh, which which is a really fantastic work, which we have in the exhibition. So that was very much the starting point when I found that record on a database um, two and a half years ago. So it planted the seed in my mind that the anniversary was coming up yep. and that the moon was an incredibly rich subject on which to base an exhibition. Mm. And so in terms of when you're, you know... Y- you start there, right? So, and then you, what, what happens next? I mean, you just say, geez, I'm going to have to, I need more than one thing here <laughs> for yeah, people no. to look at. Like, what's the process for you actually getting enough material in for, for an exhibition at a time when I, I can imagine everyone's trying to get enough mm-hmm. material in for the same, for Absolutely. similar things around the world? Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good point, actually. And, um, I guess that's the starting point. And like any sort of scientific research project or curatorial project, you then start researching. Mm-hmm. So you start looking at, you know, other, other works. So I trawl through databases of other institutional collections. Uh, we then, um, start structuring the show and the content. Of course, it has to fit into a physical space. Yep. So it has its limitations. We then request works from each of those institutions and for this work, or for this exhibition I should say, we've got works from the National Gallery of Australia, the National Gallery of Victoria, Art Gallery of New South Wales, um, a whole range of different institutions. Mm. We're also utilising the Geelong Gallery collection as well which is great to put our works in a context. Um, And then you wait to hear if you get some of those works and in the meantime you do a little bit more research and fill some gaps through artists, studios, dealers, private collectors Mm. and then you you sort of start Meshing it all together, but sometimes it's not until sort of a few months out from the actual project that the content gels, the list comes to fruition, and the themes gel. And in this case, I've worked on five different themes for the exhibition mm. and also place the works throughout the building as well because right. we usually just have a, a one particular space that we present an exhibition in but this exhibition goes throughout the whole building mm. because I wanted the experience for visitors to be very much like you experience the moon in the night or day sky where you just encounter it mm. and it's mm. constantly changing mm. in its shape it's constantly changing its position nice. within the sky so visitors to this exhibition will experience the moon throughout our seven galleries hmm. so how sophisticated are you getting at this point with some of these exhibitions because i, I saw a um a very large moon at science works recently like there's just the, i'm not there was i mean i have to say for me personally that the stuff around it wasn't as impressive as it should have been given mm. the amazing big moon they had sitting there and and the audio on that it just it didn't gel for me as a as an overall exhibit but but that one thing was astounding to look at like it was right there i was like wow i only saw that 
blood and reproduction, and it did look incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. Really, really incredible. So, so what, I mean, how are you addressing that sort of need that people have for, you know, all different types of media mm. and so forth these days? Well, the def- there's a great diversity in the content in this mm-hmm. exhibition. So we've got some original NASA photographs, for example, oh, yeah. so that the, the launch and the Apollo 11 mission is very much the starting point. But I've sp- expanded beyond that to sort of look at... Um, concepts like phases of the moon, the light of the moon, conspiracy theories and hoaxes around the moon, for example. That's <laughs> yeah. a key area to look at for this exhibition. But it encompasses photographs, moving image works, sculpture, uh, paintings, works on paper, such as prints and drawings, mm-hmm. for example. Yep. So it's very multidisciplinary. Uh, and of course, this, uh, you know, I've also incorporated some musical elements because, of course, the, you know, the moon has inspired music over yeah. centuries as yeah, well. Yeah. So we've got a couple of uh, SoundCloud stations on which people can listen to some music, um, which has been a fun component. Yeah. Um, but of course, film literature as well is also covered. Yeah. Uh, and we have a terrific learn space as well. So we've got some NASA footage that's been compiled together to present some sort of lifelong learning opportunities for, for people. But mm. of course, the exhibition content itself is also quite didactic as well. So I've tried to incorporate, where best I could, some scientific information as people wander through the spaces, whether that's about eclipses of the moon, the phases and cycles of the moon, uh, how it transits the night sky, tides, for example. Mm. Uh, um, wow. and, yeah. and there's a couple of works that do really specifically look at the science um, associated with the moon through an artistic lens. Yeah, fantastic. Hi, I'm interested in, in in something you said earlier when you mentioned that um, that you had you've got sources of stuff from all over the place, including your own your mm. own um, stock, I guess. Have you learned anything new about that by giving it this focus? Because as you say, it's it's partly scientific, it's partly personal, it, it's from a range of places. So has it has it changed the way you thought about your own collection? Uh, it has absolutely, and it's always really interesting to place our collection in a different context uh, and to build again. It's lifelong learning about mm. our collection for all of us um, that are involved with the gallery and all of our visitors. So I've learned a lot about the moon. I've also <laughs> learned a lot about our collection as well, and um, it's been a really fascinating project. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's some very early um, aspects of this that, that I, I find fascinating. We've, I'm not sure here have these in the exhibition at all, but some of the very early films were about you know human beings getting mm. to the moon. I've seen mm. some incredible old footage that was put together by some amazing original directors of movies back in the you know silent black and white days and mm. so forth. Is any of that in the exhibition? Because that, that stuff I find that fascinating. That some of the earliest film Mm. was on this exact thing that wasn't done for decades later. Absolutely. That's a fascinating point because we have a film by Georges Méliès. Yeah, right. A Journey to the Moon, which was made in 1902. 1902, yeah. And when you watch that narrative, it's really fascinating, the idea that this this group of people decide to go to the moon. They they bang together a a rocket. It gets sent up, lands in the pie face, Mm. a really iconic image. Uh, And then they explore the lunar surface. Uh, They plant an umbrella. It becomes a mushroom. They meet the selenites these people that live on, on the moon, moon. Yep. and then of course they they return to earth and splash down in the ocean so that's 1902 yeah. 67 years before the mm. apollo mission actually Jeez, landed stuff, on the moon it's it? yeah. incredible to think about it and george Moliers was a, a magician a filmmaker so he incorporated tons of these amazing special effects in mm. his works mm. and he was inspired by the writings of jules verne jules and hg yeah. yeah. wells yeah. Yeah. so all of that sort of interesting mm. thought around what, yeah. what it might be like to travel to the moon no doubt in 
inspired the um, the NASA and the Russians as well yeah, to get yeah. to get there. Oh, look, I think, the, and it's amazing seeing that um, in such as you say, 1902. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't even be aware this film had been made at that point mm. in time. So, but amazing stuff, and it's quite it is quite a, quite a thing to watch if you can get a hold of it. Absolutely. Um, in terms of the exhibition, though, so where do people go? Um, give us the details. Yeah, so Geelong Gallery, uh, which is in Little Mallop Street, Geelong, so the centre of Geelong. It's very easy to get there by car and or train at mm-hmm. Geelong Station. Mm-hmm. It's three minutes walk. Uh, we're open daily, 10 till 5. Uh, we've also got uh, a range of public programs and events associated with the exhibition, so I'd encourage listeners to look at our website, geelonggallery.org.au. And most importantly, the exhibition's free. Mm. Excellent. That, well, that's that's very important. Love having yeah, kind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Lisa, look, it's it's great uh, to talk to you. And thanks so much for making. I assume you drove up from July. I did. Today, indeed. So thank you so much for coming up because uh, it's always it's always lovely to me when I offer someone a phone interview who's far away and they say no, no, oh, come and come into the studio <laughs> because they know the difference. It's never the same over the phone. So thanks so much for making the trip up. Good luck with the exhibition. How long is it on for? It's on until the first of September. Okay, so um, a, fair, a fair time, so people yep, can get out there yep. and have a look. Um, it sounds it sounds fascinating. So. Uh, and congratulations on putting it on too because I haven't seen a lot of this around the city which um, no, is a no, bit it's sad the, the, the timing of it's been fantastic particularly this week yeah. as we enter the centenary or the, the, the 50th anniversary week yeah. uh, it's been great, thank yeah, you Excellent, thanks Lisa Folks we're going to take a short break for some music and we'll be back in just a few minutes Three Triple We're almost free. We've got a minute to go. We've still got to uh, finish this show off, gentlemen. It's um, It's been a good one, though. I think we've had a couple of amazing guests today, which is always a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yeah. What have you got planned for the rest of the day, Chris KP? I'll get to the footy this afternoon. Oh, my God. Is Pretty that, happy Is that it. why you're wearing that dodgy Richmond top? Uh, That's why I'm wearing so pants. Uh, <laughs> how good a Carlton right now? We're, right we're now, hitting right our straps. Right <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. I, don't think, I don't think I've ever had to settle down a football conversation <laughs> on this show before. You We've know, been restrained. You, 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 do, you do want to sort of end the show with a little bit of science, but you two are just... Balance. Yeah, Balance. Got, this is like psychology. There's <laughs> science behind sport. We know that. Mm. <laughs> you're out of control. Folks, uh, in a moment we are going to hand over to the team from Eat It. I think that's a football show. Uh, no, it's about food. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> There may be eggs. That's close. There may be eggs. <laughs> but uh, you have been listening to Einstein and Gogo, my two amazing colleagues here, uh, Chris KP. Thanks, mate. Yeah, thanks for coming in, buddy. Pleasure. Enjoy the football and Dr. Ewan. Pleasure uh, as always. So it's been great having you on and uh, thanks for the, the story on the plants too. That's going to mm, keep me thinking for, for a bloody yeah. while and, and it's always nice when you see a new field erupt from a piece of wood. Phytoacoustics, remember yes. that. doesn't happen that often. Anyway, Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. Thank you so much, Liv. If you're wondering uh, where all the details for the big walk against migraine, uh, they have been tweeted by Liv, so you'll be able to find those details if you follow us on Twitter. Otherwise, I'm Dr Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fabulous Sunday, and we'll chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.